It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Dana Perino. I'm Juan Williams. I'm Kennedy. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, February 22nd, 2022. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. What did the CDC know and when did they know it? A new report alleges the health agency held back on releasing some critical COVID data public health officials had been clamoring for. I think they should trust the American public that when they explain what those data mean, and if they explain it in a compelling and passionate and compassionate way, that people will understand it. I'm Dave Anthony. San Francisco voters ousted three school board members. And one of the recall organizers says it could be a lesson for parents in other cities upset with their school boards. Get out, get active, do something. You know, your weapon is a clipboard and a petition. Organize, talk to your other parents. And I'm Jimmy Fallon. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. The CDC may have known quite a bit more about COVID and how it impacts us than it has published, adding to some frustrations about the health agency, its messaging and transparency. The New York Times is reporting the CDC only shared a fraction of the data compiled regarding COVID. While some states and local areas had been sharing, for example, wastewater surveillance data on COVID since the pandemic began, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky announced at the White House COVID briefing February 9th of this year. Last week, CDC publicly released national wastewater surveillance data, tracking more than 400 testing sites across the country in 212 communities, which we will double to more than 800 testing sites in the next four weeks. At the same briefing, officials focused heavily on the efficacy of booster shots. Dr. Anthony Fauci went through some of the data. But after the third dose, you get protection at 90 percent with Omicron, which is even better than after six months after the second dose. That was just days after the CDC had released data showing while boosters added protection for older Americans, the data were less compelling for those a bit younger. And they didn't even release the data on those who were boosted between the ages of 18 and 49. Public health officials noted throughout last year the lack of data on breakthrough infections. But the New York Times says the CDC was, in fact, tracking that data. An epidemiologist at the COVID tracking project said they had been begging for that kind of information. While a CDC spokeswoman said they were worried they simply didn't have enough of the data, she also confirmed there were fears that such data might make vaccines appear less effective. Former CDC Director Robert Redfield told Fox's America's Newsroom that when he took over, he had asked for a briefing on the opioid crisis in 2018, and the data he was given ran only through 2015. And they explained to me that I didn't understand the complexity of gathering the data from the states and curating it and make sure it's accurate. So this is something that's been um, culturally uh, a view of the CDC for a long time. Among some of the other information not reported was timely detailed hospitalization data based on age and race. Well, I'm not not sure if the word withholding is the right word. Dr. Paul Offit is the director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital Philadelphia, and he's on the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee. I think that the CDC is the principal epidemiological studies organization in the United States. I was a member of the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices, which advises the CDC back in the early 2000s. And I think that what happens is, is that there are data that are generated that some people inside the agency feel are ready for prime time and others don't. 
because they feel that it's not internally consistent or not robust or not validated enough to make public. I really do think that's what was behind all this. I do think that the, the CDC can, however, do a better job at letting us know when people get hospitalized, who's getting hospitalized. So I think that's where they can help us out. But I, I don't think there's any evidence for misrepresentation or withholding in, in any sort of way in which one would assume malfeasance. Well, then what do you make of the CDC's reasoning, right? Because the spokeswoman was quoted as saying the data wasn't ready for prime time, but they also feared it could be misinterpreted. And there were fears, there were concerns regarding those breakthrough cases that it could sow the seeds of doubt about, you know, vaccine effectiveness. When you hear that some of the CDC's reasoning for not disclosing some of the data, then what do you make of that reasoning? I think they should trust the American public that when they explain what those data mean, and if they explain it in a compelling and passionate and compassionate way, that people will understand it. If you look, for example, at the number of people who are hospitalized with COVID, you're going to see over time an increasing number of people who, despite being vaccinated, are still hospitalized. That has to happen because more and more people are being vaccinated. I mean, ultimately, if you vaccinate 100 percent of the population, then 100 percent of people who are hospitalized will have been vaccinated because vaccines aren't 100 percent effective. That's different than the metric of what's the percentage of people who are vaccinated that are hospitalized. And I think people need to understand mm. the difference between those two. And it's not easy to explain. And I think you can explain that sort of thing so that people aren't frightened into thinking these vaccines aren't working. Which of the data points that we're lacking were most troubling to you. You've referenced a few of them, but I'm just wondering when you were seeking data, you know, so for example, some of the things, the effectiveness on boosters for those between 18 and 49, that was that was not disclosed. The number of infections that were considered breakthroughs, we've talked about that. Hospitalization data by age and race in a timely fashion. Of some of the data points that were missing, were any of those most troubling for you at a children's hospital in Philadelphia? Yes, I think what was most troubling for me is we need to define what we want from this vaccine. If what we want from this vaccine is what we want from every vaccine, it was protection against serious illness, then these vaccines do that with certain exceptions. I think this is a three-dose vaccine for people who are over 65. I think it's at least a three-dose vaccine for people who are immune compromised, depending on the manner in which they're immune compromised. I think it's a three-dose vaccine for people who have multiple comorbidities. But for young, healthy people, despite the fact that we have a recommendation for those people to receive a third dose, we don't have clear evidence that they need a third dose. And if they're going to make that recommendation, they have to back that up with science that shows why that's the right recommendation. Yes, yeah, speaking of that, you know, there has been criticism throughout, especially this past year, as people get sort of tired of the pandemic, in writings, but also in the reporter questionings at the briefings about how confusing things have become, especially in light of mandates. When we look back at that time when, for example, they were telling us, okay, you don't need to quarantine anymore for 10 days, we'll take it down to five days. There was a lot of confusion and questioning over that. Did we ever get the follow the science reasoning for limiting the quarantine time on that? Well, it's always easy in retrospect, but, but I think we have made a number of communications errors moving forward. I think, frankly, the biggest one 
occurred on July 4th of last year when there was an outbreak in Provincetown, Massachusetts. And despite the fact that about 350 or so men had been vaccinated, despite vaccination, got COVID. And the term that was used for mild illness or even asymptomatic infection was a breakthrough illness. That's not a breakthrough. That's what you want. You want the vaccine to keep you out of the hospital, out of the ICU and out of the morgue. That's what these vaccines are doing. The term breakthrough implies failure. And it set a standard for this vaccine that is a standard for no other vaccine. I think also when we said that when uh, President Biden announced in mid-August that we were going to have a booster dose available for everyone over 16 years of age in a month, he sent the message that two doses wasn't enough, where in fact all the evidence was, especially for healthy young people, that two doses was enough. And so I think there have been communication errors, which are always easy in retrospect. And I think you're right. We certainly are tired of this. But my sense is, is that people these days are kind of doing what they want to do anyway. I think we've maxed out on the number of people who are going to be vaccinated. And I think for the most part, people are going to wear masks or not wear masks based on what they want to do independent of what the CDC says. We we do know that more than 12 million children have contracted COVID since the start of this pandemic, and many cases have been more recent due to the transmissibility of Omicron, if I'm not mistaken, and more kids have been even hospitalized as of late. But what is your sense of how severe this has been for children? Like, can we compare the severity of illness, for example, in unvaccinated kids to fully vaccinated adults? And I, I imagine that is sort of a big can of worms because there's a lot of factors. Well, children certainly get infected less frequently than adults. And when they're infected, they're infected less severely. But they certainly can be infected severely and occasionally go to the ICU. I mean, a few months ago when I was on service in December, you know, we saw a lot of kids coming into our hospital, including the intensive care unit. I was on service this past week, and I think we had two kids coming into the hospital because they had COVID. So it's gotten much, much better. But I have yet to see a child come into our hospital with COVID who was vaccinated. Last week, the American Academy of Pediatrics wrote, and they, they frequently update um, their numbers and what they're seeing. They wrote that there is an urgent need to collect more age-specific data on severity of illness when it comes to children. I know you just said that you've kind of, you guys kind of gathered your own data, but broadly speaking, um, is that accurate? Do you, do you feel that more age-specific data on severity of illness would be helpful or, or would have been helpful? I agree completely. It certainly will be helpful. Um, what surprised me, actually, when we were discussing vaccines for the 5 to 11-year-old at the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, was that when we did zero prevalence surveys, that 40% of children in that age group were said to have been infected, which tells you wow. the vast amount of asymptomatic infection that was occurring in that age group. So, yes, you'd like to know that. I mean, you certainly know that that about 93 percent of the deaths in this country are people over 55. So, you know, it's a disease, primarily a severe disease, primarily the older person. But how about the younger person? What are the statistics for severity of illness in those age groups would certainly be helpful? Yes. Are you surprised at the low vaccination rate for five to 11 year olds? Or did I, I remember the FDA advisory panel discussing five to 11 year olds? There it was a it was a pretty lively discussion, if I recall. But the, the rates aren't there, right? It, 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 most parents don't want to get their 5 to 11-year-olds vaccinated. I was shocked by the low vaccine rates of the 5 to 11-year-old. 75% of parents of children between 5 and 11 years of age choose not to vaccinate their children. So when I was on service back in December and we would see these children coming in, even though they could have been vaccinated and weren't, and you watch them struggle to breathe and you watch them get sedated and you watch them be wheeled up to the intensive care unit where they're then 
put on a ventilator and you watch the parents crying and you're thinking this is all preventable. How can you reasonably make this choice? It's just it was hard enough before there was a vaccine. It's much harder now with a vaccine. Just two more for you, doctor. We talked last week on this podcast about kids and masks. We we know the WHO doesn't recommend masks for kids under five. What are your thoughts on masking kids over the age of like, you know, two and three like we do here? It's a mess. I mean, I think that the, the data are kind of all over the place. Um, it, it Generally, I, I would say it's probably fair to say that if you were in a community where the risk of disease is high, with, where the spread of the virus is high, if you can get a child to wear a mask, I think it is a value when they're indoors and surrounded by a lot of other people. Um, knowing that it's hard to get them to do that often, knowing that, um, you know, that, that generally young children don't get severe or fatal illness. Um, nonetheless, I think that probably makes sense. The good news is, I mean, we're now in the third week of February. The numbers are starting to come down. The warm weather is the enemy of this virus. As we move into spring, I think we're going to see the numbers continue to come down. And I think this is going to become less of an issue. Finally, back to my initial question on on the loss of trust in the CDC. What in your mind will it take for this premier epidemiological agency this premier health agency to repair any trust that has been lost? Well, what I would love to see Dr. Walensky do, who I think is great. I think she's an empathic communicator. I think she's a good communicator. She's certainly a brilliant researcher and clinician and educator in the HIV world. Um, It would be nice to see her do in some ways with what was done by the CDC director during the 2009 swine flu pandemic, which is every other day be out there in front of the media and answer the media's questions. It's take a lot of time mm-hmm. to do it. The media represents the public. The media is asking the questions the public is interested in and do that every other day. I would love to see Dr. Walensky do that. I think she's the perfect person to do it. And she is the head of the agency that's generating all the information that we need to answer a lot of these questions. Dr. Paul Offit, thank you so much for your time and your insight. Thank you. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. This is Jimmy Fallon with your Fox News commentary coming up. The COVID era has been tough on kids and their education. And across the country, it's led parents to take a closer look at their community's schools and their leaders. This school board has become a national joke, but we're not laughing. These board members are playing politics and not focusing on education. And those parents in San Francisco took action, voting out three school board members in a recall election last week. Board President Gabriela Lopez and members Allison Collins and Fauga Maliga. One big reason cited, while schools were closed in the pandemic, the board attempted, then later abandoned, renaming 44 of them to be more racially or culturally sensitive. Renaming schools and looking at the history of some of these names is important. But San Francisco Mayor London Breed, a Democrat, says the school board lost focus with students stuck in Zoom classes too long. It's about my kid used to be a kid that was social and fun and is now quiet and sad and doesn't smile. In the end, more than 72% of voters said yes to ousting all three school board members. Yeah, I was happily surprised. 
Rob Kuttner is one of the parents who is out getting recall petitions signed. You know, you get two kind of people that uh, that come and that you interact with. Uh, the overwhelming majority of people, you know, when you're standing outside a grocery store or, a, you know, restaurant or wherever you're, you know, posted up there. Most of the people you, you come across, they, they see what you're what you're doing. They grab the, the clipboard out of your hand. They want to sign right away and they'll, they'll sit and tell you stories for, for hours. You know, they, they agree with you wholeheartedly. The second ones are more, um, you know, folks who are sort of more ideologically driven, think that this is some sort of conservative conspiracy. I uh, think that you're one of these crazy recall Newsome activists, you know, and those are those were pretty rare. So I guess you could say that, you know, it maybe wasn't as surprising as 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 it should have been. But anytime you win by 50 points, that's you know, you never expect to be that successful. Yeah. You referenced Newsom, the governor. There was a recall election for the governor last year. He's right, a Democrat. Yeah. He he defeated that challenge. He, he, he did very well. And, and and the movement died. What's yeah. different? Why the school board getting so overwhelmingly defeated the three members compared to the governor? Yeah, well, I mean, the governor is, I mean, he's in Sacramento, he runs the whole state, right? So people in San Francisco, it's, it's, it's a pretty ideological town. As you know, it's probably one of the most leftist leaning towns in the country. So, you know, I think the, I think the Newsom recall was a little bit more of an ideological idea than the school board thing, which is very practical. I mean, the school board, the school system in San Francisco, the, the public school system anyway, is one of the worst in the state, which is one of the worst in the country. You know, it's the, San Francisco USD has the seventh lowest reading proficiency in the state of California, which itself is 47th, 46th in the country. And, you know, you take that coupled with the fact that they spend $22,000 per kid in the SFUSD, it's, it's, it's a travesty. Um, so it's been a long simmering problem here in public schools. And then you have this school board doing ridiculous things like renaming schools, renaming Abraham Lincoln High School. Um, while the kids are being locked out of school, public school parents are, are sitting at home watching their kids, you know, lose an entire year of school. But anybody with kids knows that going to school over Zoom is not really going to school. No, it, uh, it's hard. It was hard for kids across the country, of course, you know, uh, yeah. my son included. How many kids do you have, Rob? I have two kids. One's a, one's a junior and one's a, a, an eighth grader. My kids are in, in a Catholic school here in San Francisco. They don't, they don't go to San Francisco public school. Okay. Uh, you know, this is a small town. There's only about 800,000 people here. So everybody knows bunches of people. And I've had people come out of the woodwork talking to me. I have friends who are teachers in the, in the public school system who, you know, themselves are you know, radically in favor of, of the recall, just disgusted with, with what public education has become or not become, I guess, depending on your point of view in the city. But yeah, the public school kids here at San Francisco were, were, were held out of school longer, I think, than anybody in the state. Uh, and for no good reason. I know there was another issue that drove a lot of Asian Americans out to this recall vote. Yeah, yeah, there were several things. I mean, it's the the there's a, a merit based school right around the corner from me, Lowell High School. It's the only merit based, or it was the only merit based high school in San Francisco, where the rest of the the rest of the public schools are uh, are a lottery system. So regardless of where you live in San Francisco, your kid goes into a lottery and gets his name drawn out of a hat by random and sent to a school potentially across town. Now. For, for Lowell, it's a merit-based school. So the better you do in school, the, the you know, your, your academic record is what gets you into that school. And there were a lot of Asian parents here in San Francisco. I think the pop, you know, San Francisco is about 35% Asian. And a lot of those families, you know, those, those kids are working really hard uh, to get into Lowell. And when the school board member Collins said that uh, merit-based admission to Lowell is racist, it was a direct slap in the face to all those parents and those kids who had worked so hard to get into that school. So 
we have a lot of friends, you know, we know a couple of kids that go to school there and they're halfway through. And now that, now that the merit-based aspect of that program is, is gone, it's going to sink into the morass of what the rest of SFUSD is. And nobody's, nobody's happy about that. One of those ousted school board members, Allison Collins, was at the heart of that Lowell school controversy after tweets from 2016 surfaced, angering Asian Americans who came out to vote in high numbers. Collins apologized, but said they were taken out of context. In one, she wrote that Asian Americans use white supremacist thinking to assimilate and get ahead. Collins and school board president Gabriela Lopez also ousted both say they now fear the work they did pushing for equality in schools could be undone. Lopez saying essentially this recall was an effort to silence them as women of color. Well, of course, and they would say that because they play the race card every time somebody disagrees with them. The fact of the matter is, you know, when you keep kids out of school this way, it's the black and brown kids in San Francisco that suffer the most. So they can talk about racial equity all they want, but it's the black kids who were 47 percent absent you know, chronically absent during the lockdown because they didn't, there, there was no discipline or, or, or education going on during the lockdowns. Those kids lost 20% of their reading proficiency and the Latino kids lost 12%. So if they're seriously concerned about racial equity and, and, and racism, as they say, then they would have opened the schools up much sooner and got these kids back into school where they belong and, you know, could potentially be learning and getting opportunities to, to have a successful life in San Francisco. There's also a lot of uh, reaction across the country that even the progressives in San Francisco were uh, repudiated for being too woke. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think I don't think there's any way you can take 75% of the city of San Francisco and have them vote for something and not have, you know, a good bunch of pretty liberal folks disagree with these people. I think what we've discovered here is the is the outer edge of the envelope beyond which people just won't put up with this. Um, you know, these these this school board can only go so far. Uh, before they suffer the backlash. And hopefully the, the upside of all this is that now we've got a movement of parents that are active and engaged and interested in what the school board is going to be doing. So when, when Mayor Reed appoints new school board members, uh, I think in the next month or so, and then we have to vote on, it, vote on them in November, these people are going to be watching out and sort of paying attention to what the parents think of themselves. And London Breed herself is up for election next year. The school board is going to have to be uh, accountable. The DA, Chase Boudin, who is an absolute nightmare. He was the, it's his idea for you know, things like cashless bail and, and not to prosecute uh, thefts of up to $995, I think it is. He's up for recall June 7th. So hopefully this is something that, that snowballs and, and you know, starts to swing the pendulum back from the extreme left here in town, back toward the center. But the San Francisco Chronicle in an editorial, which you probably read, it said this was really not a broad referendum on progressive politics or wokeness. It was a plea for basic competence and for politicians to listen to the needs of their constituents. Is that true? Do you think this was a plea for basic competence? It depends who you talk to. You know, I mean, the, the Chronicle editors, I'm sure they have their own point of view. They don't want to repudiate their entire worldview. But I think there's a lot of parents who are sort of waking up to the fact that, you know, they, they can't just keep spouting off these leftist politics with no impact to themselves. I mean, the whole underpinning of a lot of this ideology is there's rules for thee and not for me like for Collins, right? I mean, she's on the school board and her kids don't even go to school in the district. You know, this town is a pretty, is a pretty liberal place or leftist place, I should say, is a big difference there. And I think a lot of folks are still sort of attached to that. And this hopefully is the start of, like I say, moving back to the center. Why just three school board members? Why recall just three? They were the only ones available to, uh, they were, uh, according to the statute, I think they were only, they were the only ones in office long enough to be recalled. The others were, hadn't served long enough to be eligible. What about them? Well, you know, to the extent that they voted for uh, the same policies, I say they're up as well. 
and we'll see what happens when the when the new school board members take uh, take their place. Um, I think if the same policies persist, which I can't imagine they would, you know, we'll see what those other policies, those other uh, other school board members vote for. If if these three new folks, you know, end up bringing the school board back to the center and and end up focusing on you know things that matter to kids, like raising proficiencies and 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 test scores, I think folks will be uh, a little more forgiving. But but these are these are. Well, as you pointed out, these are these are members that the mayor would appoint. So uh, you think these same people who went to the ballot box might have different people in mind? I mean, there will be other people who could run in November. Yeah. yeah, no, there are definitely other people that could run and we'll see who the mayor appoints. But I mean, think about it. The mayor's the mayor herself is up for election next year. She's keeping a lot. She, she sees how she sees this 50 point margin that we recall these these school board numbers. He's going to be a little circumspect about appointing radicals like them to, you know, to replace the ones that just got replaced. So I don't think she's going to replace replace these folks with folks on the completely other side of the spectrum. Um, you know, she's she's pretty left leaning herself. Um, but ultimately, it's really not a matter. You know, when, when I talk to parents, it's really not a matter of what the mayor or the school board or everything else does. I focus on getting people active and involved and, and staying that way. That's really the only assurance that we have that things are going to change. If parents get, you know, get complacent and, and stop being active, then, you know, no politician is going to be, be right into our rescue here. It really comes down to are the parents going to be active and engaged? Are they going to, you know, force the school board and the mayor and the, and the city, city administration to create a decent public school system finally? Or are they going to get lazy and, uh, and not worry about it? Lastly, you were part of this movement to get this happening from the start with petitions all the way to the election last week. What do you tell upset parents in other school districts around the country who might be listening? Get out, get active, do something. You know, your weapon is a clipboard and a petition. Um, organize, talk to your other parents. Don't be cowed. Don't be fearful. Don't, you know, don't sit on your hands. Uh, it's going to come down to you. Nobody's, like I say, nobody's, there's no cavalry coming to rescue you. You know, I think we've seen it all over the country in spots, right? We saw it in Virginia. We're seeing it here. We're seeing it sort of all over the place. And to the extent that parents get involved, that's where things start changing. If they don't get involved, things won't change. So I would encourage all parents to, you know, talk to their friends, you know, talk to talk to like-minded people, get out there, get organized, run for the school board, run for office if you're so inclined. But if you can't, you know, the 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 very least you can do is, you know, when something like this is organized, Join it, grab a clipboard, get out in front of the grocery store and start talking to people and gather petitions and get the, you know, get these things on the ballot. Rob Kuttner, who was one of those who helped organize the San Francisco recall for the school board members. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure, Dave. Thanks for having me. Nice talking to you. the news now you can with instant updates from fox news for amazon alexa just say alexa play news from fox in fox news it's the latest when you need it on demand from fox news and amazon alexa rate and review the fox news rundown on apple podcasts or wherever you listen it's time for your fox news commentary jimmy Fallon. what's on your mind so a new study finds that people who get more pleasure from drinking alcohol are more likely to become alcoholics. Yeah, the study was conducted by the University of Chicago, but it sounds like it was conducted by the University of, duh. I mean, I can't wait for their next groundbreaking revelation that people who enjoy fried chicken are more likely to eat KFC. 
There's no way this is a real study. If anything, some scientists got caught boozing in the lab and they said they were doing research to get out of trouble. I mean, instead of following the science, we should all be following the bar tab on this one. And if it was a real study, why? Nobody gets addicted to things they don't enjoy. And if they did, we'd all be in rehab for watching The View. I'm not a scientist, but with all the problems in the world, I'd like to think the real scientist could raise the bar and, I don't know, maybe study the other type of corona. I think we could all drink to that. Be sure to listen to Fox Across America with me, Jimmy Fallon, weekdays from noon to 3 on the Fox News app or foxacrossamerica.com. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.